Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there you have it this morning. That's, that's where we're going to be this morning. So uh, we're in this series, as you guys know, uh, walking through the entire narrative of the Bible, at least broadly. And so what we're trying to do is at least focus on uh, the 12 most significant key elements of the story of God, the story that God has been writing from beginning to end that we see in his word uh, that really is meant to point to Jesus as the Redeemer, the redemptive story that points to Jesus, the Redeemer. And so uh, this week, we get into uh, part three of this. And we're coming to one of the most challenging passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. And so I was kind of debating this week. I'm like, I don't know what's more difficult, uh, the flood or end times. Like, I don't know which, which one of these sermons is going to be a cha- more challenging sermon. So um, this morning, as we get into it, that's where we are. We're talking about the flood. We're talking about Noah and the ark and everything that's happening with the flood. So I know right off the bat, as I say that, and even as we read the story, uh, the, the reality is that most of us, right, are probably familiar with romanticized retellings of this narrative. So we have, maybe first and foremost, we have a lot of children's stories. I brought some pictures for us. So we have children's stories that retell uh, the, the narrative of Noah and the ark. And so with, with these children's stories, uh, the, the emphasis often is, is kind of, hey, just ignore what's happening outside the ark. Let's focus and put the emphasis on what's happening inside the ark. So look at all the cute farm animals. We've got the horses and the pigs. Uh, we, we have the romanticized retellings of the narrative. 
Uh, and, and then if you're anything like me, maybe you think of Noah and the ark and you, you read Genesis chapter six and Genesis chapter seven, and because of Hollywood, you start thinking of a Gandalf version of Steve Carell, right? Yeah, we... <laughs> right, what we have from Hollywood is this uh, satirical, kind of comedic, lighthearted retelling of the narrative. So we have these romanticized versions of the flood, and, and most of us know the general story, I think, because of it. The general story, kind of as we just read, is, is God comes to Noah and says, hey, hey, bro, uh, a flood's coming, a lot of water is coming, I want you to build an ark, build a big boat, get a bunch of animals, you and your family, you're going to be fine, get in the boat, and, uh, and then this flood's going to come, and then everything's going to be great. So that happens, Noah builds the boat, gets in the ark, all the animals get in, and, and then the flood comes, it subsides, and then there's a rainbow, and there's sunshine, children's book. That's the general story that we know. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, when we get to the Bible, we see that the Bible paints a, a fairly raw picture for us, doesn't it? it? It actually focuses on the elements of the narrative that often are missed out on when we come to the romanticized retellings of the flood. So this morning, uh, we're just going to go there. Just, just two quick points. We're going to go there and focus on the two key elements that the Bible uh, tends to kind of zoom in on and focus in on. And, and the point in this is that we would, we would learn what um, the flood and the ark, those will be the two things we'll look at, Tell us about God and tell us about ourselves, okay? So that's where we're going this morning. So first is the flood, the flood. <clears throat> so right off the bat, there are tons of historical questions maybe that we begin asking when we get to the flood. Like, okay, what did the flood really look like? Did it actually cover the entire earth? Was the whole earth submerged in water? Was it just kind of the known world at the time in kind of a smaller region. And there's been a lot of debate about that. A lot of scholars have gone back and forth. Uh, and, and people land in kind of two different camps on that issue. Um, but, but yeah, there's a lot of questions in this. Like, what did it look like? How did it happen? How can we work this out uh, scientifically? What does this mean? Um, but in this, uh, the, those questions, I think, are not the questions that are of utmost importance because those are the questions that the Bible, again, doesn't place the most emphasis on. I think a better question and a harder question, if we're honest, is, is why the flood? Why, why did the flood happen? Why is this a key moment in the larger story of God that we've been talking about? And so I just want to answer that on the front end. So I'll kind of give you the answer on the front and then explain it. So here's the answer. Why the flood? Um, the flood is God's direct response. You hear that? God's direct response to the corruption, evil, violence, the sin that's multiplied in the human race since the fall, the last three chapters of the Bible. Okay, you hear that? I'm gonna say it again. The flood is God's direct response to the corruption, evil, violence, and sin that's multiplied in the human race since the fall. So it's not like there's there just a season of increased Pacific Northwest type rain and it just kind of happened at this time and it just was the rain that came. No, like the flood is God's direct response to the corruption, evil, violence, and sin that's multiplied. And, and God says, I'm going to wipe it all out. I'm going to wipe all of that stuff out. It's in response to what has taken place. So we have to see clearly, um, this is a story in, in the broader story of God that showcases God's justice and the enacting of God's divine judgment. Showcases God's justice and the enacting of God's divine judgment. This is God pouring his judgment out. That's what this story is about. So, so out, out the gate, right, we realize this is a really uncomfortable sermon. This is a, this is a challenging sermon. It's a challenging text. This, this is the kind of stuff that makes people uncomfortable with Christianity. They, they say things maybe like this. I, I just can't believe in a God who would do 
blank. I just can't believe God would do that. This is the type of, of scripture passage, I think, that people come to, and it makes them want to tidy God up, if you know what I'm saying. You ever had a moment where, like, you know, people are coming over your house, and you got 15 minutes, you check the time, and you're like, I cannot clean everything, so I just need to stuff things in the drawers. I need to, I need to tidy up so that my house looks more presentable. This is the type of text people want to come to, and they want to tidy God up to make him look more presentable or palpable to the culture. Maybe even this is the type of text, this is the type of moment in the Bible that make people reason that the God of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is significantly different than the God of the New Testament and the New Covenant. So all this being said, we come to the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we're like, okay, what's going on here? God, are you just like in a bad mood? You're just having a bad day? You hangry, God? <laughs> what's, what's going on in this text? And no, of course not. That's, that's not... That's not the answer. Um, rather, the, the answer is incredibly clear what's, what's going on all over Genesis chapter 6. So I, I brought kind of the two most key verses with me. In verse 5, from God's perspective, what do we see? Verse 5, chapter 6, says, wickedness was great. What was great? Wickedness. And, and then the, these kind of these matchings of these words are used. Humans are only evil continually. You're like, those are some strong three words put together. Like, just evil by itself would be bad. Only evil, that would be worse. But only evil continually, that sounds pretty bad, man. And then verse 11, we see the whole earth is corrupt in God's sight. Everything is corrupt. And then additionally, it says that there's just human violence everywhere. That humans are just uh, being violent towards one another and taking the image of God uh, out against one another. So what we see in this we saw a couple weeks ago, is Genesis 1 and 2, we see this reality that it's beautiful. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's beautiful. There's humans walking in the garden with God. There's no sin. And God's desire for humanity, his will of desire, is that they would continue to do that. They continue to walk with him and know him and love him and reflect him and enjoy him. And then God says, hey, out of that, when you walk with me, when you, when you walk with me and know me, you'll be fruitful. So I just want you to multiply that. So be fruitful and multiply as Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis chapter 6, if you scroll up a little bit, it uses the same motif of multiplication, but it says that wickedness is multiplying. So it's like God's intention was be fruitful and multiply. Multiply goodness reflected from the image of God. And then Genesis chapter 6, wickedness is being multiplied. So what we see is like everything's hit the fan. It's just, about, it's just about as bad as it can get. It's real ugly, evil, violence, corruption, sin unraveled all over the place. And we see in verse 6 and verse 7, this grieves the heart of God. It displeases God. None of this was God's will of desire for his creation. So in, in verse 7, God makes it really clear. He's going to take action and set out to wipe out all of the evil everywhere through a terrifying flood. So he says in verse 7, we saw this already. I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, heavens. So again, this, this is problematic for so many people today. Uh, I, just, I just want to press on this a little bit. Like maybe this is problematic for you. Um, I, I don't think that anybody in our Western individualistic culture has an issue with the idea that God is love. If, if you're to go to the street and ask somebody, and ask them, hey, do you have a problem with the idea, that, no matter what you kind of believe, do you have a problem idea with the idea that God is love? I don't think anybody in our Western culture would have an issue with that. But the minute that God is a judge, the minute that God enacts judgment, dare, dare I say, the minute that God is wrathful, that, that presses on us a little bit. It presses on our culture. 
some, some years ago, even as I was kind of a younger follower of Jesus, I was, I was actually wrestling with this idea, with this idea of, of, of like, God, how can you be all loving and, and yet at the same time be a holy judge who enacts judgment and, and who is wrathful? Like, God, can't, can those things exist to you? Is that even possible? And uh, a couple years ago, I came across some writings from a Croatian theologian who, who's had a very different life experience than me and a very life, different life experience from you. And uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I'm going to absolutely butcher it. Um, but uh, I brought the entire quote that I read, and it, it significantly impacted me. Um, here's what he said. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person in every culture. And he says, that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? Uh, by doting, that is kind of adoring, same, same word, by adoring the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Then he says this, is stunning. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. It's profound. He's saying love demands it. God's love and God's justice are, are not these attributes of God having a wrestling match inside of God. He's saying because God is perfectly loving, he is perfectly just. And because God is perfectly just, he is perfectly loving. Uh, Tim Keller goes on to make the point um, that God's anger, whenever we get to moments in the, in the Bible where God is angry, we tend to kind of recoil and back up because we think that God's anger is like our anger. And so just to ask you the question, what was the last thing you got angry over? Because for me, I think I got angry over losing my keys and doing the dishes yesterday. So it's like, I'm just irritable. I'm just, I, I was inconvenienced. God's love isn't like that. God's love, or God's anger is not wounded pride like our anger is. God only gets angry at the evil destroying the things that he loves, namely his creation and the human race he made for his own glory and for our happiness. So in Genesis 6, we see God is not okay with violence. We see God's not okay with evil, we see God's not okay with corruption. He can't just ignore these things. He's not just cool with it. He doesn't just pass over it. So the flood, more than anything else, it's kind of my main point, reveals that God is just and can't ignore injustice. The flood reveals God is just and cannot ignore injustice because of his character, because of his nature. That's who he is. So resonate, I just want to say this get a little pastoral for us. Um, this should both comfort us, this truth. This should both comfort us and act like a warning for us. They're one and the same. So for, first the comfort. The comfort in this is this. 
God's perfect justice means that all injustice, all evil, all wickedness that has ever taken place in the course of human history will not simply be forgotten by God. It won't. Uh, unlike human judges who, who rely on a jury and a, and a court system and just kind of the best evidence they have, and sometimes our human judges get it wrong. God will not get it wrong because he intimately knows all of his creation. And he's sovereign over everything. And nothing happens outside of his knowledge. So the comfort of this truth is that there is hope for those who have suffered at the hand of evil. Do you see that? There's hope for those who've suffered at the hand of evil. We mourn, we sit with the suffering, and we weep with those who weep, but we do so with the hope that God will in the end make all things right. This means if you have personally been trampled over by evil and injustice in your life, in your past, God's not just okay with that. God is not indifferent to that. God sees you, he knows you, and this even says that that, that grieves him because of his perfect justice. This means to get more real, if, if you were ever abused, if you were physically abused, if you were verbally abused, God forbid, if you were sexually abused, God is not indifferent to that. That grieves the heart of God. There's some sense that God is angry because evil is destroying and hurting the things that he loves, namely his creation. So in this... Um, I just want to point out, don't you see how little hope for the world there would be if God was not a God of perfect justice? There'd, there'd be not much hope for the world. There'd be no hope for the abused. There'd be no hope for those who are trampled over by evil. And worse yet, there'd be no intellectual basis to assert any kind of human rights in the world. I just said it. <laughs> there'd be no intellectual basis to assert any kind of human, human rights in the world if there was no judge outside of nature. If there's no judge outside of nature, then there's nobody to, de- to determine what's evil and what's not evil. And then there'd be nothing wrong with the ethics of survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest, hey, take what you can get. If you want to kill somebody to get ahead, go for it. There'd be nothing wrong with that. See, there's a lot of talk about justice in the world today, a lot of concern about social justice. I think part of the reason for that is because God made us in his image. And God is perfectly just. And so we long for a sense of justice because God is perfect justice. So there's comfort, there's hope. Uh, you, you can probably see where I'm going this, with this though. There's, there's also the warning. There's also the warning. Um, God's perfect justice, the warning is this. God's perfect justice means all injustice, all evil, all wickedness that's inside of you or I cannot simply be passed over, ignored, or forgotten by God. So you see, you see the comfort and the hope and you see the warning, right? The comfort and the hope and the warning of the flood. There's a comfort because we know that in the end, evil will not triumph in God's story. We're gonna get to the end. Evil will not triumph. He will judge and wipe away all evil. But in that same vein, in that same sentence, we see a warning because that begs the question, what will he do with me? What will, he, what will he do with the evil and the impurity and the corruption in me? It's a bit of a double bind, isn't it? Well, enter the ark. The ark. The second significant element of this narrative, the ark. As you, if you kept reading at the end of chapter 7, we see this pretty brutal picture. 
where it, it simply states that nobody, nothing survived the flood. God did what he said he would do to eradicate injustice in the world. We, we see these poignant words end of uh, chapter seven. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. So anything that had breath in its nostrils no longer had breath in its nostrils. Nobody uh, survived except for this, this crew in this boat, except for this crew in the ark. So I'm gonna illustrate this for us a little bit. You see what's happening. Uh, God sends the floodwaters and they come and they rage. And these floodwaters are God's divine judgment pouring out and rolling, not like a flood, but literally as a flood. And, and as God's divine judgment comes, as a flood, the waters eradicate injustice, corruption, violence, and evil everywhere. And meanwhile, there's this one ark. And do you see what's happening to this ark? This ark is floating atop the waters and the waves of God's justice are coming up against it, crashing against its hole. But rather than destroying it, the waves are the mechanisms on which it floats. Everything inside is shielded and protected from the waters, the storms, and the manifestation of God's judgment. See, if the flood shows us that God is just and can't ignore evil and injustice, then that tells us that you and I need safe passage. Do you realize that? Because there's evil and injustice in us. But in the same picture, the ark shows us that God provides safe passage. God has provided safe passage. The ark shows us that God is gracious and provides safe passage, salvation, in other word, through judgment. That's what the ark reveals to us. The ark shows us that God is gracious and provides salvation. Do you see that? Uh, many times, I think out of a really genuine heart, uh, we might hear this passage taught or we come to this passage and somebody preaches on it. And, and the primary message in this passage is be like Noah. Hey, let's make Noah the center of the story. Be like Noah. Be moral and good and, and a faithful believer in a world where nobody else is and God will have favor with you and he'll bless you and, and God will save you at the end of the day. Be more like Noah and God will rescue you. Just, just stop sinning, be better, do better, live more holy. The thing is, the problem with that message is Noah didn't save Noah. The ark saved Noah, right? Noah didn't take swimming lessons. That is not Genesis 6, 7, and 8. It's not that Noah took swimming lessons and he, he floated above the waves. No, Noah trusted God and got into the ark. That's all he did. See, the story of the flood does not say you and I need more Noah in our lives. It says you and I need an ark. That's what the story of the flood tells us. And, and Jesus of Nazareth, centuries later, generations and generations later, he actually says this, believe it or not. It's funny, Jesus believed the Old Testament. <laughs> in Matthew 24, here's what Jesus says. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus is saying, just like in the days of Noah, when the flood came and, and washed everything away, in the future, Jesus says he's returning again. And he's saying, in the future, all the earth will face his holy judgment. We will all face his perfect judgment. That will either happen when we pass from this life onto the other side of eternity, or it will happen when Christ returns for the second time. Sorry, he, he will only return once. He came the first time, he'll return again. Let's make that clear. Not, not saying some weird stuff. Jesus is saying, we need an ark. Just like Noah, in the days of Noah, Noah needed an ark. We need an ark. We need a vessel that will carry us through the waves and the billows and the storms of life and of death and of judgment, especially the storm of the wrath of God. And friends, praise be to God, he has provided the ark that we need, the perfect ark in Jesus. God has provided us the ark that we need. So listen to me closely. I want you to hear this. Right after speaking these words in Matthew, Jesus Christ, hear this, Jesus Christ is submerged in the waves and the billows of God's wrath and judgment on the cross. Jesus bears all of the sin and evil of those who would trust in him, and he faces the justice of God in our place so that in his resurrection he can offer a safe passage and salvation from the judgment of God. Do you see this? Do you see that Noah was saved from physical death by climbing onto a wooden boat? The reality for us today is we're saved from spiritual death because Jesus climbed on a wooden cross. You see what's happening in, in the story of Noah and the ark. You see the waves crashing against the hole. They're absorbed by the ark. They're shielding those on the inside. Well, when Jesus got on the cross, the, the waves meant for us crash against Jesus and he absorbs them. He lays them in the grave with him and, and his work shields those who would climb inside of him through faith. So salvation, according to Christianity, according to the broader story of God, it's not about you. It's not about how great you are. It's not about how moral you are. It's not about how religious you are. It's not about how faithful you are. It's not about the size of your faith. It's just about the soundness of your ark. You see that. So my question for you this morning is simple. Have you climbed inside the ark? Have you climbed inside the ark? Paul uses the language, the New Testament uses the language often of being found in Christ. Well, are you in Christ? Are you trusting in the ark? Have you climbed in the ark? Or are you still hoping that your performance, your moral efforts, your crossing your fingers will be enough to rescue you from the storms of life and the storms of God's judgment? See, for those who are in the ark, those who have trusted Jesus, our judgment day has been moved from the future to the past because Jesus bore our judgment so that we could become sons and daughters and be called righteous through his work in our place. But for those who are not in the ark, this acts as a warning. This acts as uh, an invitation and a warning. The invitation is come to Christ. Allow him to be your ark that carries you through the storm. And the warning in that is if you don't, then any other ark that you try to build yourself or you try to kind of combine on your own efforts, it's not gonna work. 
It's not going to work. So friends, this morning, may we be a people who know the soundness of our ark and may we be a people who invite others to climb it. That's the the invitation for us. So I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing a response.